We will be continuing in our series in the Gospel of John. We will finish John chapter 14 this morning. So if you want to, if you have a Bible and you want to turn to it or grab one of the ones in the pew in front of you, you can feel free to do so. Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, we ask for your help this morning to understand your word and impress it on our hearts by your spirit. Graciously give us what we need, the power that we need, the understanding that we need, that we might have our lives changed, that we might find sweetness today in trusting you and in hearing the words of Jesus himself. Help us put off anything in our minds and our hearts that would hinder us from hearing and responding to your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to begin by quoting some lyrics from a song. It's from Veggie Tales, because this is what plays in our house. But it is not... It is not a silly song with Larry, though that is often quite quoted in our house. Junior Asparagus is quite scared to go to bed at night. He's laying in his bed and he looks around and it seems like everything's terrifying. Is there eyeballs in the closet? Is Godzilla in the hall? There's something big and scary casting shadows on the wall. And so good old Bob the tomato and Larry the cucumber come to him. And he says, what are you going to do? And Junior Asparagus says, I'm going to call the police. And he says, no, you don't need to do that. And he says, why? And then he quotes the words, right? Most of you probably know them. God is bigger than the boogeyman. He's bigger than Godzilla or the monsters on TV. God is bigger than the boogeyman, and he's watching out for you and me. Fear is a powerful emotion, isn't it? And we don't really necessarily grow out of it. We may grow out of fearing monsters or the dark, but fear doesn't stop, it just transfers. We begin to fear something in a relationship, or we fear something financially, or we fear something going on with our government, or with the gas prices, or we start to fear a war that's going on in another part of the world. Our fear doesn't stop, it just switches over to something else. So what do you do when you're afraid? What are you left to do? Junior Asparagus said he was going to call the police. What are you going to do? In our passage this morning, Jesus knows the fear that his disciples are feeling. And so he gives them some specific truths that as they are about to see what happens to Jesus, which seems to be very scary, they can actually grow in their faith and find joy and peace that will help guard them against their fear. And my hope is that as we also hear the words of Jesus, we will have our faith increased And we will grasp and hold on to that same joy and peace that he gives to his disciples. Let's read our passage for this morning. It's in John chapter 14, 
We're going to pick up two verses that we already covered last week just to get the whole paragraph for context. So we're going to start in verse 25. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. You heard me say, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. I think it's helpful for us to actually kind of begin at the end of the passage and work backwards. So that's the route we're going to take this morning. In the final verses, Jesus lays out what most of us should consider to be the most frightening circumstances anyone could possibly face. Yet, even in the worst imaginable events to ever take place, Jesus describes how he is not motivated by fear, but he is motivated by love. So we have your first point there in your outline, love in the scariest situation. If Christ is able to pursue love for the Father in the midst of his own torture and death that he's about to face, it should also lead us to live by faith to live by love for God when we face any fearful circumstances. So in verse 30, we're given the scary situation. What's it say? I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. Imagine hearing those words, right? They already knew that Jesus is leaving, and he says now, right? Jesus, the Messiah, God with us, is not going to talk with us much longer. But instead, what's happening? The ruler of this world, a reference to the devil himself, is coming. The devil is coming to do something to Jesus, or at least to attempt to do something to Jesus. In fact, think about Jesus' final words as he hangs on the cross. What's he say? It is finished. Now we look back and we say, amen, praise God, it's finished. But imagine being the disciples on that day. The one they had just followed for three years just died and said, it's finished as he dies. That's terrifying, isn't it? That is a scary situation. He just said it's over. The devil's won. The very real enemy that we also face who roams this world seeking for someone to devour. It seemed like he had victoriously devoured Jesus, right? He first had worked in Judas's heart. He entered into Judas, got him to betray Jesus, and ultimately led to Christ's own death. And it seems like the devil won. Much like it often does in our own lives, doesn't it? You look around the world around us, and it seems like he's winning, 
It seems like evil is taking over. But before Jesus even goes to the cross, before it seems like the devil has won, what does he say? He makes it clear that though there is a temptation to fear, fear does not need to be his reality, nor the reality of his followers. Look at the end of verse 30. Though the ruler of the world is coming, he has no claim on me. Literally translated, he has nothing on me. While at the surface level, it may be the scariest situation to ever take place. The death of the Son of God himself. Jesus begins a shift here. Is it scary? Yeah, maybe. Do you need to be afraid? Not one bit. Why? The ruler of this world, the devil, Satan, has nothing on Jesus. He can make no accusation on Jesus who has no sin. He has no power that could ever compare with the power of God himself. His will, the devil's will, always has a ceiling to it. It's always encompassed by the grander, bigger, greater will of God himself. And as we continue into verse 31, we see Jesus now give a description of what is motivating him. Obviously, the ruler of the world coming is not motivating him. He's not fearful of that. But what is his motivation? Verse 31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus is going to continue in this whole scary situation, this whole process, Why? Out of love for his Father. Jesus is going to the cross, to his death, bearing the weight of our sin, and it was not driven by evil, it was driven by love. Evil didn't win, God won. And notice what love is motivating Jesus. Our temptation would be then to go back to John 3.16, wouldn't it? For God so loved the world. Whose love is motivating Jesus? The world, that the world may know that I love who? The Father. Right? That doesn't mean John 3.16 isn't true. Right? It doesn't mean it's not true. But Jesus' motivation here is not fear, but a love for the Father that makes him go through with all of this. A complete trust in what the Father's will is. Because if Jesus was motiva- motivated by fear, what would he have done? He would have avoided the cross. Fear makes us hide, doesn't it? I think of my kids when they know that they got in trouble. What do they do? They either go run and they hide behind a piece of furniture and they poke their head out to see if you're coming after them. Or if they're stuck in whatever position they're in, if they're sitting at the table, you get this. Right? That is if somehow that is going to hide them. But when they know they're in trouble... And they start coming to me. They stop running away out of fear. They start coming to me. What's the motivation for that? Hopefully trust. Hopefully this sense of, while discipline may seem unpleasant at the time, they know that their dad has the best in mind for them. That he tries his hardest, not by perfection in any way, 
but that I try my hardest not to put them in a harmful path, but in what is best for them. My friends, how much more is that true with God? You don't just have to hope, right? Just kind of wishful thinking that God might have you on the right path. God always, God's will is always the right path. Jesus, as the Son, knows that whatever the Father has planned, even if it means the cross, it's always what's best. He doesn't hide from the Father's will, but instead he runs to it because he loves the Father. When you face suffering or a trial in your life, what does it produce in you? It's not hard to see the reality of evil in our world. Sickness, unstable families, addictions, financial concerns, countries fighting against each other. But when you look at that evil, what motivates you? Does it induce fear in your heart? Anxiety about what you might lose? Worry about how long is this going to last? Or do you respond like Jesus and say, this is all in God's hand? A trust that even in the midst of these scary situations, you will grow to love him more, knowing that he reigns over all of it, even reigns over the devil himself, who has no claim on Jesus. And what do we call that? What do we call this sense of trust, this growth in loving God more and following his commands, even when everything else seems to be terrifying? Faith. And that's what we see as we work backwards. This is the response that Jesus desires from his disciples. As they are going to watch these scary events unfold, he wants them to grow in their faith, particularly in two ways, right? Second point, faith in Christ's work and his words. Something is about to happen, right? A work is about to happen. Jesus is about to face death on the cross. And as his disciples see that... And what follows afterwards with the resurrection, they are able to trust that, trust Christ's death and resurrection. But it also, in seeing his work played out, should cause them to trust all the words that Jesus has said up until this point. So they are to trust both his work and his words. Look at verse 29. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may Believe, right? Notice what's, what's repeated in that verse. Takes place. Before it takes place, so that when it does take place, something's about to take place. Right? There is a work that's about to happen, a certain event. And this is what Jesus was referring to in the verse we just read, when he says, I do all that the Father has commanded me. What's about to take place is what the Father has commanded Jesus to do. And what is it? Jesus going to the cross. Bearing the weight for our sin, facing the wrath of the Father himself, even experiencing what it means to be forsaken by the Father. And he wants his disciples to pay close attention to this. Because what's proven to be true just three days later, as Jesus raises from the dead, it's proven what he just said to be true that the ruler of this world has nothing on him. The cross and resurrection is the greatest display for us to see that it's better to love God than to fear our circumstances. 
It's better to trust him than to be scared of whatever it is that seems to be going on around us. What seemed to be the end of all hope, the death of the Messiah himself, ends up being what saves us for all eternity. And he tells his disciples in verse 29 that what's about to take place, what does he want them to do in response at the end of the verse? That you may believe. Have faith in these events. Have faith in the salvation provided by Christ's death and resurrection, or what we call the work of Christ. But it's not just his work that they are to trust. What else does he say in verse 29, right at the beginning? And now I have told you before it takes place. So these events are about to take place. The work is about to take place. But Jesus says, I am telling you with words before it takes place so that after it happens, you will not only trust what happened, but you will trust my words even more that I told you before it happened. As they see God's will played out, they can now look back at all that Jesus has told them and trust it even more. Their faith in the work of Christ causes their trust in the words of Christ to grow. Anybody seen the movie The Vow? We just talked about chick flicks last week, right? So I don't know if you're familiar with it, but a story about a wife who gets in a car accident and remembers nothing about her husband. Comes out of it, and all she can remember is life before him. Right? The husband speaks words to her of, I love you, but these terrify her. It makes absolutely no sense for her to even try to comprehend those things. But as the movie goes, what happens? The acts, the works of love displayed by the husband, give more weight to the words that the husband says. By the end of the movie, she can not only say she believes his words, but she can actually say she reciprocates the love. As we trust in the salvation provided by Christ's work, in his death and resurrection, we should then in turn look at all of Jesus' words and believe them. Not just believe that he said them, but believe that they are meant to be lived out. So my friends, have you trusted first and foremost in the work of Christ, in his death and resurrection? I'm not asking, do you believe that it happened at some point all those years ago, that whether it's just simply historically true or not, but have you given yourself over to his work? That your only hope to be saved from your sin is that Christ has taken your sin and given you his righteousness. And if you have trusted in his work, if you're saying amen to those truths, then ask yourself, have I trusted in his words? If you truly understand the cross and have faith in what Christ has done, you also must trust all that Christ has said. You see his words as ones that are meant to be obeyed, kept, observed, lived out in your life. I know this sounds elementary, right? But just ask, how much do you know Christ's words? When those scary situations come up, how much are you running to Christ's words? Knowing that that is the comfort that you need. 
If you don't run to Christ's words, which you claim to trust in the midst of your scary situations, then we have to start to question, do you really trust Christ's words? And if you don't trust Christ's words, then have you really begun to trust his work? They must go hand in hand with one another. His works must lead you to trust his words. If you don't see God's greatness in Christ's words, then maybe you haven't really seen God's greatness in Christ's work. Which leads us, then, to one of the fruit produced by faith. A fruit that helps us fight our fear. Joy in God's greatness. Now, we often see joy and fear as opposites of each other, right? How can I have gladness when I'm scared? And rightly so. But what Jesus explains here is that joy should be the normal experience of people who have faith, even when the circumstances around them are fearful ones. Move back a verse again, verse 28. You have heard me, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. So we see the scary situation again, don't we? Jesus says, you heard me say, I'm going away. Even though, yes, I said, I will come back to you, just the fact that I'm going away stirs fear in his disciples. They're terrified of this. They're not rejoicing that he's going away, but they should be. That's what Jesus is telling them. If they truly loved him, they would rejoice in knowing where Jesus is about to go. That's the source of joy. Where is Jesus headed? He tells us here, right? You would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father. Why does that develop excitement? Why should Jesus, going back to be with the Father, stir excitement? And he gives that at the end. For the Father is greater than I. The Father is greater than the Son, so it should cause joy that the Son is leaving this world to go be with the Father. Now, this stirs all sorts of questions, doesn't it? First, how is the Father greater than the Son? And I think there's two ways we can understand this, two things that are helpful to remember. First, we have to remember that right now, as Jesus speaks these words, the Son is bound to a physical body in a way that the Father is not. Jesus has submitted himself to take on a human body and bind himself to that body. Though after the resurrection we see that glorified body, it ascends into, he ascends into heaven, Jesus has bound himself to a physical body in a way the Father never has. So in some sense, the Father's expanse of his glory is much more pronounced, much more extreme, much more greater throughout the world than Jesus in this physical moment. But second, as we see in Jesus' teaching, specifically in the Gospel of John even, we see how Jesus over and over again talks about submitting himself to the Father. Innately in the eternal relationship of the Trinity, I know we're getting to some theological things here, and we're not going to spend a camp out on them for a long time, but innately in the relationship between the Father and Son in the Trinity is a relationship of the Father constantly giving the Son his sonship doesn't mean that Jesus is dependent on the Father for life. It doesn't mean that Jesus 
hasn't always existed for all eternity. It doesn't mean Jesus is less, less God. It doesn't mean he's less valuable. But in some way within the Trinity, there is the Father granting the Son his sonship. We call it the term of eternal generation is the theological term for it. So Jesus, throughout his whole ministry here on earth, describes what? My will is to what? Do the will of my Father. There's a submission aspect of what's going on here. I know we don't like that word in our society, do we? But Jesus says this is the relationship with his Father, so it's a joy for him to go back and be with him, to get finally to go back and be present with his Father. Now that stirs another question. Why should that produce joy for us? Sure, that's great for Jesus, right? The son gets to go back and be with the father. Why should that stir joy in us? And I think there's three reasons why we should rejoice with Jesus going to the father. First, as those who share in Christ, those who are, have union with Christ by our faith, we should share in whatever joy Jesus has. Whatever brings Jesus joy should bring us joy, should it not? And what we find in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, is this. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now we see where that joy comes to culmination, is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There is a joy set before Jesus, a joy of getting to go back and be with the Father that was set before him that caused him to endure the cross. So if it's joyful for Jesus to be back with the Father, we should also have joy that in the fact that Jesus has joy. So that's first. But I do think there's two benefits for us even that we should rejoice that Jesus goes to be with the Father. First one, so there's three reasons. That was the first one. This is the second reason, but the first benefit for us. As Christ, we just read, right, is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, so also are you and I who believe in Jesus seated in the heavenly places. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do you see what's true of you as someone who belongs to Jesus? You were made alive, raised up, and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So in some spiritual sense, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That should be a joyful reality to hear. And last we kind of see the flip side of it. Not only does Christ take us to the Father, but what we saw last week is that the Father comes to us. Remember, Jesus said last week, when he goes to the Father, what's he going to do? 
I will ask the Father, and he will send you a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit will not just be near us as believers, but will be in us. But not just the Spirit comes. Who else comes? Just look back at John 14, where we're at. But look, jump back to verse 23. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we, Son and Father, will come to him and make our home with him. So we get the best of both worlds. Jesus takes us up to be with the Father, seated in the heavenly places, and while you wait to see the full reality of that in your future, while you're in the present, what's true? The Father and the Son and the Spirit, all three members of the Trinity, come and make their home with you. You are with Him and He is with you. Is there any joy to be found in that, my friends? When you face the enemy in this world, when suffering comes knocking at your front door, when the brokenness of society swoops right in front of you, when sin reminds you daily of its presence in your life, is there any joy to be found? I sure hope there's joy in the greatness of who our God is. Because if you see how great God is compared to anything else in this world, then you will be able to rejoice no matter what you face in life because you know this. God is with you, God is in you, and your future is set. You're already placed in the heavenly places. You can face any darkness around you with this assurance, with this joy. And as you find joy in these truths, you'll be able to live your life at peace, which is our final point here. It's precisely where our passage begins, right? I know we read verses 25 and 26, but verse 27 is kind of where the new part began today, and it's where we're going to end. Christ's peace, unlike the world's. As you see Christ go to the cross, not out of fear, but out of love for the Father, as you trust in his death and resurrection for your salvation, as you grow in faith towards all of Christ's words, That faith produces joy, knowing that the great Father himself makes his home with you as you face all of this. And in all of that, you no longer need to fret over the things in this world. You don't need to worry over all these earthly aspects that don't work out the way you thought they were going to. You don't need to fear because you have peace. But it's not just any peace. Look at verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Two things I want to take from that first half of the verse. First, Christ's peace is not as the world gives. The peace that comes through faith in Jesus is a peace that cannot be replicated by anything in this world. In fact, let's just case study this for a moment from the world's eyes. If the disciples came to the world with suggestions for how they were feeling in this moment, what would the world prescribe to them? 
Well, tell me what your problem is. Well, you see, I left everything to follow this teacher for three years, and now he just left, and I'm scared. Hmm. Sounds like depression. Sounds like anxiety. Here's some medication for you. Or maybe a different avenue. You know what? It sounds like this teacher made you very dependent on him. You need some therapy to think better about yourself so that you realize you don't need him to feel good in life. That's the world's peace. These prescriptions for peace offered by the world are simply attempts to relieve the symptoms without ever taking care of the soul's problem, the heart that is troubled, as Jesus calls it. These self-helps, these medications offered by the world, are like giving pain medication to a cancer patient. Sure, for a while it may make life a little more tolerable, but it never deals with what it means to have a fearful heart. It doesn't remove the cancer, it simply makes it more tolerable. May this not be sufficient for us. May those who, of us who belong to Jesus realize that Christ offers a peace that is greater than anything this world could try to offer us. Which brings us to the second part of that first half of the verse. I want us to notice whose peace does Christ give? He says, peace I live with you. My peace I give to you. It belongs to Jesus and to him alone. You will never find this peace anywhere else. Not in having any medical understanding of how things are working. Not in any politician who promises to stop the war. Not in any other religion that people seem to be flocking to. Not in any pleasure that this world offers to you. True peace that surpasses understanding. Peace that goes beyond your circumstances. That can withstand any scary situation that you will ever find yourself in. Can only be found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. So my friends, let me comfort you with the same words that Jesus ends with here in verse 27. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. When you are tempted to fear, tempted to feel overwhelmed by the chaos of the world around us, when your whole life is upended by some sin or suffering trial, remember this. The peace of Christ is yours. You can face the darkness of this world with joy, knowing that our great God has come to you, made his home with you, and that you also are with him, seated in the heavenly places. Your faith in every single word of Scripture, can grow because you can look back and say, Jesus did exactly what he said he was going to do in his death and resurrection. Jesus faced the scariest situation any of us could ever face, the wrath of God himself, death on a cross, tortured and ridiculed by men, 
but he went through with all of it, not out of fear, but out of love. He wasn't scared of the ruler of this world, but there was a joy set before him in loving his father, following exactly what his father's will was for him. You can do the same thing. You can love the Father and live in His will with faith, joy, and peace. Christ's heart was not bound to the circumstances of the world around Him, nor does yours have to be. Don't be afraid. Don't let your heart be troubled. My friends, when you are afraid, when you feel tempted to go in that direction, May you trust in Christ, find joy in Christ, and be at peace with Christ. Let's pray. Father, we we live our lives not knowing what darkness is going to come in front of us next. But you know. In fact, your word tells us that darkness is not even darkness to you because you see it all clearly. So help us when the circumstances around us get very scary, very fear-inducing. May we not seek to trust the world and its offers for peace, but may we look to Jesus. May we trust what he's done, the peace that we have by his death and resurrection. May we trust his words to be true. And as we grow in our faith, may we find joy in the fact that you are with us and we are with you And may that allow us to live in peace. Knowing that no matter what happens, just like Christ pursued a love for you without fear, so also can we. Help us to live faithfully this week as we go throughout these months. Regardless of our circumstances, may we pursue to love you and be faithful to you And in that, find joy and peace. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to close with a well-known song. I don't know how much we've actually...